Hi, I'm Josh, and welcome to the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, the podcast, the late podcast, that talks the art and craft of nature photography. It's the 14th of August, 2023, and this is podcast number 80. I really can't believe it's the 14th of August. Time has just got away from me. I know I see this a lot on these podcasts, and I really do have good intentions to try and do these more often, but time just seems to get away from me with office work and everything else that goes on in life. Uh, time just disappears. And uh, before I know it, uh, it's been like more than two weeks since I've done a podcast or sometimes longer than that. So apologies if it's been a little while since the last one. I didn't actually check. I think it was at least two weeks ago, though. So which is when I did the uh, book review of Nick, Bar- Nick Brandt's excellent book, Inherit the Dust. Fantastic book, actually. But anyway, uh, I'm here today. I'm going to be doing another podcast. Uh, we'll come to the topic of the day in a minute. A couple of housekeeping items just to go over. Things that are of interest, um, both camera-wise, lens-wise, and competition-wise. Let's perhaps start with competition. So I had a bit of good news that uh, one of my photographs has been highly honoured in Nature's Best Photography in the Paul Passion category. Um, I can't yet, unfortunately, share which photograph that is, but I'm really excited about it. I don't very often enter Nature's Best Photography these days, predominantly because I find a lot of the style of the images is just not my preference. Uh, it has a very, if you like, uh, North American style to the look of these images, which means that what I mean by that is, uh, and I'm not casting any aspersions on that style at all, it's just not tickling my cup of tea usually, which is usually very clean um, backgrounds, uh, quite sterile looking images. And it's just not a competition I enter very often. In fact, I actually don't even remember entering it this time. Uh, obviously I did because I got an email saying that uh, I'd made the semi-finals and then I got another email saying that I'd been highly honoured uh, and I don't even know when the final announcement on that's going to be but I'm pr- it's pretty cool, it's always exciting to do well in a competition so I'm pretty chuffed about that. I'm also still lo- waiting for the final announcement from Bird Photographer of the Year. I had quite a lot of images, I even forget how many it was now, maybe three, four, might have even been more that uh, have made Bird Photographer of the Year book. Uh, the annual book, that'll be edition number eight, that will be due out later this year. You can pre-order that. I think I talked about it in an earlier podcast, actually. I don't know yet who the competition winners are. They haven't announced it. So I'm also looking forward to to seeing that as well and uh, to being able to go through that book because those Bird Photographer of the Year books are just outstanding resources. They're books I reference a lot. I know I reviewed them in an earlier podcast not that long ago. Uh, Perhaps go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it, but they are an outstanding resource for anyone who's got an interest in birds or bird photography. Um, Okay, putting competition aside, let's come to a couple of other items. Trips are rapidly approaching. So I have got a Greenland trip, I've got a Finland trip for wolves, I've got an Iceland extension, and I've got an Antarctica trip to go this year. So there's still a lot to happen. I actually just did a blog post recently on lens selection for Antarctica. That might be of interest whether you've been to Antarctica or whether you're planning to go in the future. Uh, That's a podcast, sorry, that's a podcast, that's a blog post I recommend you go and have a look at. Uh, I've basically given it a lot of thought and um, I put down what I believe, is the best options for lenses for Antarctica. Really, it comes down to the flexibility of zoom lenses. And thankfully, these days, we have such a great range of zoom lenses to choose from. So that also might be of interest. I may even put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then the final item for today, which I thought was kind of of interest, 
from a housekeeping perspective is that Petapixel, which is the website that reports on a lot of photography news, did an interesting post, actually it was a video post, on what they would like to see in the Canon EOS R1. Now, it's a bit of a wish list. Uh, it's worth going to have a look at it just to see what their thoughts are. I don't necessarily agree with everything that they're asking for. I think some of it's kind of a bit redundant and superfluous. I guess it depends on whether you shoot video or not and what your subject is. Uh, for me, really, all I want in an EOS R1 uh, to be honest with you, is what I've got now in my EOS R3. Uh, I don't really need any more than 24 megapixels, to be honest. It's enough for what I do. Uh, more pixels perhaps give me some cropping power. That's about all. Uh, certainly, I don't need any more for making prints or for using my images online or licensing them or anything like that. 24 is simply enough, um, and I prefer to have the ultra-clean high ISO. Now, there's no doubt that the EOS R1 is going to come with more megapixels. Uh, it's going to have enough to do 8K, so somewhere around the 45 megapixel mark. I don't think it's going to be an ultra-high megapixel camera, but I could be wrong on this. It's I just don't know. Canon don't tell me. Um, I've had a lot of emails from people asking me if I can tell them what the camera is going to have. Honestly, I just don't know. Canon don't divulge that information to me. Uh, they don't tell me when the when the camera is coming, uh, other than I know it's coming next year because it's an Olympic year, and that I expect a fourth quarter development announcement this year for a official announcement perhaps early in the new year, and then delivery in time for the Olympics. That's all I can say for certain. Uh, I am almost certain that it's going to be an R3 body, but I really can't even say 100% for sure on that, that that's going to be the case. Same goes for the 200 to 500 millimeter lens. I know that's going to be announced in the fourth quarter this year, but I don't know the final street price, although I've heard 16,000 US dollars, and I don't know exactly when it's going to be available for delivery either. Uh, that's a lens I'm very, very interested in, as I said in my last podcast, and I think one or two earlier than that. So uh, I am looking forward to when that comes. It's going to be time very shortly to do a packing podcast for the upcoming trips. Now, the upcoming trips are starting in Finland. Uh, I'm actually going to have a little bit of a break first in Sweden uh, before I go to Finland, uh, which will be for Wolves and uh, Wolverine. And that'll be primarily a 600mm lens uh, trip. I really don't need much else. I may, I'll throw a wide angle in the bag, of course, because I'm going to need it for Greenland and Iceland, but probably won't get used in Finland. But I don't want to get into the, too much of the details of what I'm going to take with me for those trips. I'll do a separate post on that. It will be sort of the normal gear, give or take a few bits and pieces. I'm going to take some split ND filters with me. Uh, for the Iceland extension afterwards as that's a landscape trip and it's been a while since I've done a dedicated landscape trip and I am looking forward to that I'm looking forward to spending a little bit more time in Iceland as well and just speaking of spending more time in Iceland some very good news for me was this week I flew to Sydney uh, I had an appointment with the Slovak consulate um, I have been working for the last year now to try and get my Slovak citizenship through descent because my father was born in Slovakia and I have finally been able to do so. It has taken a lot of work, a lot of searching of the archives uh, to find the relevant documents, which even once you find the documents have to be certified and apostled and all the other things that go along with it. But I finally got a copy of my citizenship documentation this week and I've now applied for my Slovak passport. That's going to take another four to six weeks. So unfortunately, that won't arrive before I leave for overseas but it will be here waiting for me when I get back. And I'm really excited about that because it's going to mean that 
I can now buy property in the EU. I can now travel freely in and out of the EU. Uh, and I don't need to worry about this rolling 90 days out of every 180 in Schengen on the Australian passport. That's been really problematic for me in the past. I've come uh, within a few days of running out of days in Schengen before. So it's going to be fantastic to have that when it arrives and to have that all said and done as well. It was quite an expensive exercise, if I'm honest. I didn't add up what all the costs were. I actually engaged a professional firm to do this for me uh, because everything had to be translated into Slovak to before it went to the Slovak embassy. So I needed a professional translator to do that. I needed a firm that specialised in citizenship uh, in Slovakia in order to be able to tell me what documentation was even needed. So I engaged a professional firm for this. Their costs were around the $5,000 mark. And then on top of that, there was the gathering of documents, postage, certifications, apostles, probably all of that mounted up to another couple of thousand dollars. So it was a very expensive exercise, but totally worth it for me to have my EU citizenship and be able to basically move and live anywhere I want inside the EU uh, without travel restrictions is going to be just simply fantastic. And even actually outside of the EU, because for, at the moment, for Australians to travel through Chile, um, which is one of the gateways to Antarctica, is very difficult. I talked about this in my podcasts last year, the difficulty I had in getting a visa to go to Santiago in Chile for my Emperor Penguin trip. That hasn't changed. It's very difficult for Australians to get visas into Chile now. That's a tit-for-tat situation where we've made it difficult for the Chileans, so they've made it difficult for us. It's pretty awful, really. But on my Slovak passport, I can enter Chile without the need for a visa for 90 days. So that's going to make my life a lot easier. And to be honest, also a little bit less expensive because flying from Australia to Santiago is a lot less expensive than having to fly from Melbourne to Dubai and then Dubai to Buenos Aires. So I'm quite pleased about that as well. It'll save me a few bucks in the long run. So let's come to the topic of the day. That was quite a lot of housekeeping items. I thought it was going to be brief, ended up a little bit longer than I than I expected. But let's come to the topic of the day. And that's going to be not a rant, but I just want to talk about it, something I'm seeing happen more and more on social media. And it was actually Brooks Jensen that put me onto this. Brooks Jensen runs a podcast uh, called Lenswork, uh, the Lenswork podcast. It's a fantastic podcast. I don't listen to it all that often, but every now and again, I tune in just to see what he's been up to. I like his photography very much. If you don't know him, not to get segue too much on this, but he's a black and white photographer, USA based, publishes Lenswork, the book, as well as the podcast. And he's usually on point with a lot of what he talks about. And he did a podcast talking about this, and I think it's worth bringing up here too. And that is, there tends to be, um, I'm not going to quite sure how I want to describe this, but when a beautiful photograph, usually a landscape image gets posted to a group on Facebook, let's say it's a stunning image of Aurora Borealis over the ocean in Iceland or something like that, there tends to inevitably be somebody who immediately comes on and says, oh, it's been photoshopped. Uh, and destroys the credibility of the photographer in by doing so. Now, that comment, it's been photoshopped, unless that person was there and has inside information to know this for a fact, it's just an assumption. And when we make that kind of assumption we, and we make it public, what we're doing is we're pulling down the work of the photographer without really knowing the facts. Now, of course, the image may have been photoshopped, but it may not have been too. And we should give the photographer the benefit of the doubt if we don't know. Uh, I think it's really poor form on social media to destroy someone else's image by claiming it's been photoshopped or it's a multi-image composite when you don't know for sure that that's the case, because it may not be. This particular image I was talking about, 
this image of the Aurora Borealis that was posted over the Reykjanes Peninsula, uh, immediately had three or four locals, when I say locals, I mean Icelanders, come out and say, this image is clearly been composited in Photoshop because of the direction this was shot in. Uh, the aurora was never in that part of the sky. Uh, to which the person who posted the image said, well, actually, it was in that part of the sky that night. There was a huge, big uh, explosion of aurora, and they just happened to be there at the right time. That scouted the location during the day and had set up their camera, they'd figured out the composition they wanted, and then they simply got lucky with the aurora that night. And they got a great photograph. It was a beautiful photograph. But then what happened, unfortunately, was a whole bunch of people, it wasn't just one or two, it was about a dozen, felt the need to pull this person down and destroy their credibility simply because they believed it had been photoshopped. And it hadn't been. This person then went on to post a snapshot of the original RAW file, which clearly showed all of the detail, all of the aurora that was there. Uh, and really, they shouldn't have had to do that. I think it's just really poor form that from the anonymity of a keyboard somewhere in the world, someone makes a snap decision that this is not a real image and destroys the photographer's credibility. Now, of course, it goes both ways. I, As I've talked about before, I'm a big believer in disclosure. So if an image has been heavily photoshopped or if it's a multi-image composite, uh, it should be disclosed. Just disclose it. Be, be, don't be disingenuous. Be upfront with your photography and say, hey, it's a multi-image composite. Uh, or, you know, yes, I did this in Photoshop. Um, but if you don't disclose it, and sometimes photographers don't, um, and they get called out on it, if it's found out to be true that they've been called out on it, I think that's okay. But you better have your facts in a row and your facts straight when you call somebody out and say, hey, this is not real. Um, because when you make an assumption like that, it's really bad. I don't mean to sound like I'm ranting about this or I'm, or I'm pontificating from on high or anything like that. I don't want that to be the case. I just think that unfortunately with social media, it's just too easy from the anonymity of the keyboard to make us a, a slanderous comment on someone's photograph when we really don't know the facts. Usually what I do when I see something that makes me scratch my head and go, hey, is this real? Usually I just ask, I'll post the question. Um, and you can get your answer in a number of different ways. I've posted the question before on a few photographers who are quite well known and said, hey, was this photoshopped? This, you know, I'm just asking because I'd like to know. On two instances, they deleted the question. There's my answer. The question, clearly it had been Photoshopped. They deleted the question. They didn't want to disclose it. Fine. That's okay. That's the way they want to play the game. Uh, it's not the way I want to play the game. And other times I've asked the question and someone's come back and said, no, it wasn't Photoshopped or yes, it was. Either answer is okay. It just depends on what side of the fence that you want to sit on. I just think it's about being honest and about having dis full disclosure on the photographs. As nature photographers, I really think that the onus is on us to be honest about our photographs uh, and portray them as accurate depictions of nature and not creations in a computer. I think if you call yourself a landscape photographer, that's perhaps a slightly different story. But as a nature photographer, we are by definition kind of documentarians. Uh, and our job is to document what we see in nature. Now, we can do that in a couple of different styles, of course. We can do it simply from a documentary style, or we can do it from the art style. I try and do it from the style of art, meaning I want to put the feeling and emotion I see in nature into my photograph. 
Not everybody wants to do that. It's not right or wrong. It's just the way I want to do it. But this is something that's been bothering me a bit in social media, and I hadn't really realized it until Brooks Jensen called it out in his podcast, and I wanted to do the same. This business of making assumptions about what a photographer has done to their photograph, I think it's just dangerous because most of the time we're wrong. And I've seen this a lot in competitions too. When I used to judge for the AIPP, the Australian Institute of Professional Photography, and I would judge at the APRA Awards, the Australian Professional Photography Awards, which were a print award. Uh, and I still lament the loss of those awards, but that's another story. When I used to judge for them, I would often hear judges make assumptions about the photograph. And I would have to say to them, hey, we can't assume that. We don't know. Um, we weren't there next to the photographer when they took it. And we weren't there standing over the shoulder when they did the post-production. So we can't assume. All we can assume is that the image has been scrutinized on entry and therefore and deemed be deemed to be acceptable uh, to meet the competition guidelines and therefore it's okay so we have to assume it's okay and I think we owe photographers um, that right you know that basic right let's assume that their work is legitimate if you like for lack of a better word perhaps not the best word but let's assume that it is uh, captured in camera and if you think it's not either move on ignore it or ask the question, but let's not just tarnish them with a brush uh, from the anonymity of our keyboards. I think that's poor form. Uh, it's not doing anyone a, a, a good service when that's done. So I, this, this ended up a little bit more ranty than I wanted it to be. I didn't want it to be a rant and I didn't want it to sound like I was getting on my soapbox about this because everybody's different and we all have a different approach. It's just that unfortunately social media seems to bring out the worst of people in relation to... Uh, for lack of a better word, tall poppy syndrome. So when somebody posts a beautiful image uh, and it gets a lot of likes, inevitably someone out there feels the need to try and pull it down and destroy it. And that's very, very unfortunate. Uh, and one is one of the things, again, I really dislike about social media, unfortunately, even though it remains a great platform for sharing photographs. Uh, and I still think it's very, very good for that. Uh, and it gets people inspired. And I take a lot of inspiration still from the images I see on social media as well. So that's my thoughts on it. Um, you know, I just think it's worth taking a breath sometimes before we respond or comment on an image to think about what it is that we're going to say and that we are actually commenting on somebody's work of art. Um, and we're all at different levels too. So we have to keep that in mind as well. So anyway, I think that's about all I wanted to say on this issue. I am going to try and do another podcast before I go. As I said, it's the 14th today. I'm flying out on the 22nd. So I think it's my flights in the evening. I need to check that. So I've got a about, what is that, uh, eight days or something like that, a week basically, uh, to finish up everything here. So I want to do a packing podcast on what I'm going to take for these trips because packing for Finland, Greenland and Iceland altogether does prevent, present, uh, not prevent, present a few challenges uh, and I want to try and get it all into one bag again if I can. Uh, we'll see how I go with that. I've got to take quite a bit of kit with me for this trip, uh, not just camera equipment but clothing as well. So I'm going to see how I go for that. I think that's all I wanted to talk about workshop-wise. Most things, I've still got a few places available for my Antarctic trip this December. If you're keen on that, let me know. Uh, and then we're already going to be into 2024. Uh, and that is, I don't know where the time is going. It just seems to be flying past, as I said at the start of this podcast. That's just how it goes. So I think we'll leave it there for today. Uh, I'm Josh. It has been the 14th of August, 2023, podcast number 80. Look forward to seeing you out in the field. Take care. Bye-bye.